Welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright. Today's talk is entitled, Sufferable Evils, Thoughts on the Declaration of Independence. And it was originally shared on July 4th, 2010 at St. John's Unitarian Church in Cincinnati. Thanks for tuning in. story at this Sunday service, I shared the story of the frog in the pot. The basic idea is this. If you throw a frog into hot water, the frog, and we decided his name was Joe, will jump out. But if Joe starts out in a pot of room temperature water and you slowly heat it, he doesn't realize the water temperature is changing. And that's the end of Joe. There are two readings today. The first is from the Declaration of Independence. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed and from theologian Jim Wallace. At times, I think the truest image of God today is a black inner-city grandmother in the United States, or the mother of a disappeared in Argentina, or the women who wake up early to make tortillas in refugee camps. They all weep for their children, and in their compassionate tears arises the political action that changes the world. The mothers show us that it is the experience of touching the pain of others that is the key to change. It seemed appropriate this morning for me to use a section of the Declaration of Independence as a point of departure. I zeroed in on one particular sentence right away. Mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. We would rather continue with things as they are, even if things are bad, than to do whatever is necessary to change our circumstances. It gives us a lot to think about. So what inspires us to finally change something for the better? When is an evil no longer sufferable? This morning, I'd like to share with you some thoughts and stories about change, both within an individual and within larger systems and institutions. And as we share time together, I hope you will consider the sufferable evils of your own life. What circumstances have prompted you to make changes happen in your own life? Are there things weighing on you now? Evils you have deemed still sufferable? Pain you tolerate? I want to begin by telling you about Tenonier. 
Over the four years that my son Tucker has attended his elementary school, I've often stopped at a nearby convenience store for gas or for a snack in the morning. And over those years, I've had the good fortune to get to know Tenanye, a woman from Ethiopia who has worked at the store all that time. Tenanye is a soft-spoken, gentle woman. I often ask her to teach me some words in her language, Amharic, and then I never remember them by the next time I see her, and she just laughs. One weekend afternoon, my son and I went to enjoy time in a park near the school, and Tenanye was there with some friends and her mother, who had come to visit from Ethiopia. Her mother spoke no English, but smiled broadly when Tenanye translated for me that I was honored to meet her and that she must be very proud of her daughter. For the first time, I was able to talk with Tenanye about her perceptions of life in the United States. She began by telling me how amazing it was that there is so much opportunity here. She talked about how amazed she was that she could get a job, that they let her work. She said it always surprises her how much she hears people complaining about the way things are, because from her point of view, things are pretty good. Tenonier's journey has involved unimaginable change, from a chaotic, barren, impoverished land to this green, relatively peaceful corner of Cincinnati. I asked what has surprised her here, and she said she is surprised at how many people don't use the opportunities they have. And she is shocked at how many people don't respect their elders. She described her horror when a young person will come in with their parent or grandparent, and after the elder person buys everything, the younger person lets the elder carry the bags. Tenanye said she comes out from around the corner sometimes just to carry the bags out of respect. I love that image of Tenanye coming out from behind the counter. It is such a literal parallel for the way we can come out from behind our self-centeredness when we pay attention to the needs of another person. Tenanye doesn't like to talk about her life in Ethiopia. She will merely say it was bad there. When I asked what brought her to Cincinnati, she told me that she and her family worked with extended family and friends to make all the necessary arrangements to move. She has a brother in Canada and a sister in Florida based on where sponsors could be located. I was left with the image of a large web spreading across the entire world of the connections between Tenanye and her extended family and friends. And it made me think of the critical nature of that network for her. It was the deciding factor in her ability to leave Ethiopia. Staying connected to friends and family meant keeping the door open for potentially life-saving assistance. I don't think we feel the same urgency that Tenanye may feel when she says to her family, let's keep in touch. It was the network within which Tenanye lived, the web of family and friends, that helped her make this seismic change in her life. Maybe the changes we would like to bring about in our own life don't seem as dramatic, but how well do we share our hopes of improving healthy habits, decreasing debt, coping with an illness, 
with the web of friends and family connected to us. A friend of mine from high school, who is now connected to me again through Facebook, started training for his first marathon last week, and he posted it on Facebook, quoting the research that shows we are more likely to follow through with a new goal if we write it down and if we share it with friends. And I've made a note to myself to check in with him about his training each month. I want to celebrate with him when he posts the finish line pictures. We all want to help our friends reach their goals, but how often do we take the time to tell each other about those goals? The next person I'd like to tell you about is Florence. The month of May last year was a difficult one. I spent a lot of time at Fairview Hospital in Cleveland at my dad's bedside as he recovered from quadruple bypass surgery and then was kept four more weeks in the hospital thanks to intestinal bleeding that happened as a side effect. One of the medications they gave my dad for pain ended up making him hallucinate. And while we were getting that figured out, one morning he started saying he really wanted to talk to the tall old woman with no teeth. And I brushed this off as something he had imagined until late that night when Florence came in. My father loved this woman. She was 76 years old. She had been a nurse over 50 years. Even when he was disoriented, My father smiled the whole time Florence was in the room. She was kind and confident and funny. I asked her to tell me the most important thing she learned about working with people over those 50 years. She didn't have to think about it very long before she said, you know, when someone needs to do something, you have to find a way to present it to them so they end up feeling like they came up with the idea themselves because that's when they'll really do it. If they just think it's your idea or the doctor's idea, they'll say they're going to do it, but they won't. It reminded me of the technique used by therapists called motivational interviewing, which is used to deftly point out the disconnects between what a person is wanting in their life and what they are actually doing in their life, so they can begin piecing together the steps for change themselves. The next story I want to tell you is a story about a pot roast. The story goes like this. A woman was using her mother's recipe for pot roast. The first step was to cut off the end of the pot roast. And for the first time, though she had made pot roast this way for years, she wondered why she was getting rid of the perfectly good piece of meat. So she called her mom. And her mom said, you know, I've never thought about that. It was your grandmother's recipe. Let's call her. And they called the grandmother, who laughed and said, Well, I don't know why in the world you two are cutting off the end of the pot roast, but I had to do it because my pan was too small. Sometimes we continue with behaviors simply because it's what we've always done, or what others have always done. Years ago, I shared a talk here entitled, It's not how you climb the mountain, it's how you handle the pebble in your shoe. It really is the small things that can wear us down, frustrate us, tire us, as much or more than the big upheavals in our lives. I shared the story of the frog today 
although it's something most of us have heard at one time or another, because it is such a good illustration of our tendency not to notice things that are happening or accumulating slowly over time, the same way we would notice a sudden change. Maybe no dilemmas illustrate this tendency more poignantly or dramatically than cases where people struggle with hoarding or with obesity. Compulsive hoarding is actually a kind of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Not one, but two current reality shows on television portray the drama and frustration of these scenarios. None of the hoarders started out making their way through foot-wide passages carved into canyons of newspapers and boxes in their living room. The belongings accumulate over time. And like the frog in the pot, the hoarders themselves don't respond to the growing piles. Between 2 and 5% of the population in our country suffers with this disorder. That's over 1.5 million people. One of my friends told me recently that he went to a seminar by Tony Robbins, and in the seminar, Robbins said that people will decide to change a situation when the pain caused by the situation is greater than the pleasure that would arise from making the change. But I disagree. We know it would make us feel better to lose weight, to address clutter, to increase our savings. We know the discomfort that lies in not making changes. We know there would be pleasure in achieving a change, but we don't change. There's a Buddhist saying, to know and not to do is not really yet to know. For several years at our mental health agency, I was lucky enough to be the clinical supervisor for our case management team that serves deaf clients. Through that experience, I learned some sign language And I prided myself, when I didn't know a word, on being able to sign a phrase that I thought was, I don't know. And our deaf clients would always give me an odd little smile. And it was months before one of them told me that what I was actually saying was, I don't think. The sign for no is all four fingers pointed at the head. And the sign for think is just one finger pointed at the head. I delight in the difference between those two signs because it's so apropos. Thinking utilizes less of ourselves than knowing. Think for a minute about your own life, the things you think, and the things you know. Most of us are struggling somewhere with what I'll call mental chafing, the rubbing of our thoughts against a reality that's causing us a kind of blister in our psyches. Here are some I hear frequently. A lifestyle issue like weight gain or addiction, something that may not be causing extreme problems yet, although we know in time it will. A job we don't like or within which we struggle. Concerns related to our possessions, the maintenance of our home or car, or the proliferation of clutter. Dissatisfaction in a relationship, a sense of isolation or loneliness, financial problems. If you were somehow transported out of your life and landed back in it with fresh eyes, what would you see? If, like the frog, we were suddenly thrust into the hot water, we would jump out. 
What would that jumping out look like for you? Would it mean making the doctor appointment and asking for assistance with a weight loss plan? Would it mean calling upon friends to help us fix something or clean something that we have let go for months? Would it mean asking your partner to see a counselor together? Would it mean making an appointment to see a debt counselor? In almost all those cases, it begins with reaching out. Perhaps we can use this morning as an excuse, an excuse to call a friend and say, you know, I heard this talk and it made me think about some things I'd like to work on and change, and I was wondering if you would be willing to help me. If we hesitate to make that call, we must think about what our own reaction would be if that friend were to call us with a similar request. Who among us would flat out refuse a sincere request for help from a friend who wants to change their life? We must learn to treat ourselves as well as we treat our friends. The final story I want to share with you today is the story of my ancestor, Peter Middaw. Peter was born in New York in 1748 and ended up living as a frontiersman in Pennsylvania. He became part of a corps of expert marksmen in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. During the war, Peter was taken prisoner by the British at the Battle of Long Island, the first battle that took place after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And he was held on a prison ship off Brooklyn for nearly a year. So many prisoners died in the prison ships in that area that for years after the war, human bones were still washing up on the shores of Brooklyn. But my ancestor survived. I like to imagine my ancestor Peter sitting in the park with Tenonier. I want to know, all four fingers know, the kind of gratitude they must have for a meal, for work, for green spaces, for freedom. My prayer for all of us today is that we may know and do those things that bring us closer to peace, that we might cultivate gratitude and fortitude of spirit, even if we have not been a refugee or a prisoner, that we come around the counter, move beyond our own comfort to help and support those around us, and in doing so, that we find our own strength to reach out and grow beyond those sufferable evils. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Preacher Girl podcast. More episodes are available for free through the iTunes store in the podcast section. The music in the podcast today is from singer-songwriter Stephen Grant Smith, who is also the show's producer and sound engineer. You can find more of his music on Amazon.com. And I'm Diane Wright. As always, feed your spirit, live in love.